You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 48. And as always, I hope you remain safe and healthy. So I'm pushing this show out at midweek as I was traveling over the past weekend. Uh, my wife and I took a small vacation, uh, a non-herp vacation. There were no herps involved. Uh, but I did see a snake on the side of the road, uh, which I thought was a, perhaps a garter snake. And uh, I also saw an aquatic turtle on a log. Uh, so there were a few minor characters uh, in the form of herps. Uh, I guess it's going to take a trip to Iceland or somewhere like that in order to come up with a completely herp-free vacation. But uh, that's the way it goes. Patrons, uh, the show's newest Patreon supporter is Pearson McGovern. Thank you so much, Pearson, for your support. And I also want to thank Tom Ellis for making a one-time contribution via PayPal. Uh, This is actually Tom's second one-time contribution, which sounds a bit confusing to say, but uh, it is no less appreciated. So thanks, Pearson, and thanks, Tom. And uh, if you would like to help keep the show moving along, see the show notes or listen to the bit at the end of this episode for more info on doing that. One last bit of housekeeping. Uh, I want to say thanks to everyone providing feedback about the last handful of episodes. And I know it's hard to believe, but even the briefest of notes is far more satisfying to me than a wagon load of likes or hearts. So I do like to hear your thoughts. Now, for this week's episode, we return you to the continent of Australia, and Dr. James Van Dyke is our guest. Van, as he likes to be called, is a senior lecturer in biomedical sciences at La Trobe University's Wodonga campus in Victoria, Australia. Now, some of you may remember Van from the old Field Herp Forum, where his handle there was Van A.R., And as Dr. Van Dyke, he has been living, working, and studying in Australia since 2012. And he's been involved with a number of very interesting projects, and uh, we're going to talk with him about a few of those. So let's get to that interview. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. And today I'm talking with Dr. James Van Dyke, all the way from La Trobe University in Australia. Welcome to the show, Van. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's it's great to uh, talk to you and see your face. Uh, we, well, I don't think we've ever actually met, but we've corresponded off and on over the years, and you were uh, a um, a frequent uh, participant in something called Field Herb Forum back in the day. Yep. And uh, folks will remember you as, I think, Van A.R.? Yep. Yeah, because I was in Arkansas at the time, so, yeah. Right. So uh, great to have you on the show. I've kind of followed what you've been doing over there with some interest. Uh, and uh, perhaps we'll start there and I'll, I'll let you uh, describe a little bit of what you do. Now, uh, you're a professor at La Trobe University, and you probably have some other duties that you do, too, besides uh, research. You're probably teaching and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's funny. Um, uh, I got this job because I have some background in teaching human anatomy and human physiology. Um and my teaching here is mainly for pre-med students. So I, I'm, I teach in that 
field uh, more than anything else right now. But they allow me to continue doing my research on uh, on turtles and on uh, the evolution of reproductive uh, strategies. So I, I do a lot of work on viviparity and placentation as well. Oh, very good. Uh, a number of years ago, I went to a turtle survival alliance meeting, and one of the I don't remember who gave the presentation, but it was about uh, some uh, aquatic turtles in the uh, Murray River Basin, I remember. Or maybe it was the, the St. Mary's River. I can't recall. There could be a St. Mary Mary's River. River. Oh, yeah, the Mary River. Yep. The, yep. That's the Mary River. Queensland. That was yeah. It. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that was that kind of piqued my interest because, you know, I had never thought about Australia in terms of aquatic turtles before. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of an eye opener. So, uh, yeah. uh, so that's one of the re things I hope we talked about today is your work with the aquatic turtles there. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I work on in the Murray River here. So this is a the largest um, river basin in Australia, the Murray Darling Basin, and I'm located where I work is in a small town called Albury in Wodonga. So right on the border between New South Wales and Victoria. And um, this river system has three, well, where I'm located anyway, has three species of turtles. So it's not quite as diverse as the U.S., but, uh, but we do have a few that are around. And then as you go up north, it's, it's almost like the Graptomese kind of situation in, in the southeast U.S., where as you go north, pretty much each river on the coast has its own population of turtles. And, and some of them are the same species. And then there's some diversification as you move up the coast that way. I see. And so if we uh, throw a dart at the map of Australia I, to pinpoint your general location, I think you're down in, I would say, the lower lower right quadrant. Is that safe to say? Yeah, yep, yep, the southeast. So it's still, like right now, it's still a little cold because we're coming towards the end of winter, um, but it'll be warming up soon. But it's, I guess it's far enough south that we have a, we do have more of a winter. There's no snow or ice or frost here, but um, you go up in the mountains and you'll get some of that. Yeah, I have some friends who live down, not quite where you're at, but uh, in an area where they, they live up where they get snow in the mountains and they mm -hmm. are involved in skiing and other activities yep. up there. So yep. also kind of mind blowing for me because we have that that the typical view of Australia with, uh, you know, red deserts and kangaroos and things. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's there's many textures to Australia. Yeah. And the Murray Darling system, as you go further west uh, into especially as you get into South Australia or the Darling system in western New South Wales is is pretty dry. It's almost desert, um, not quite desert, but um, you definitely run out of forest and things like that. Um, and it, in some places it has been called a, a desert river system that historically would have had. Um, late winter, early spring, early summer, um, big floods, flows related to snowmelt from the mountains. Um, but now all of that's kind of backed up by a series of levees and dams, so you don't get the big flood events. Um, and instead, you just have kind of a, a river system that's kind of fairly regulated. It's very similar to the Colorado system or some of the other systems in the western U.S. And of course, I'm, I'm willing to bet that that regulation affects the freshwater aquatic aquatic turtles yeah so we the three species that we have um the eastern long neck is probably the most affected by that because it's a uh it really likes temporary wetlands and they'll they'll walk overland sometimes long distances 10 15 kilometers to get to uh ephemeral and temporary wetlands that they can use while they're wet and then as soon as they dry they they hop out and they walk somewhere else uh, and they're really well adapted for that. They have uh, pretty thick skin that has low water permeability, and so they can they can withstand 
those in, those dry conditions. And sometimes if they get stuck, they'll they'll just dig down in the soil and wait for a rain, uh, and then they'll pop out and keep wandering until they get to the next waterhole. Um, the other two that we have, the broadshell turtles, which are they're really cool. They're the the big snake necked ones that people might be familiar with. You might see in the zoo sometimes. I know um, I'm pretty sure the Tennessee Aquarium has some in Chattanooga. But their shell is up to about 400 millimeters long. I've measured some slightly over that. And then their neck is almost that big as, as well. So you get this turtle that total length is uh, almost a meter sometimes. Um, oh, my gosh. And then there's also the Murray short neck turtles. And both of those are the broad shells and the short necks. They like more uh, permanent water. And they don't really come out and walk over land too much. So if they want to get somewhere, usually they'll be swimming to it. Wow. So uh, you, you've got one species that's kind of behaves. We have some counterparts in the United States that behave in something of a similar fashion, like mm -hmm. your yellow mud turtle mm -hmm. does some of that, and uh, Blanding's turtles. Oh, I forgot. I, I, I'm supposed to start calling those uh, yellow chin Mars turtles. Oh, I haven't heard that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I we were having a discussion in the car today, coming back uh, or coming. We were out, and I was in Indiana, folks, and we were doing some herping and. That's not central to the story, but I decided I made a vow in the car that I would only call Blanding's turtles yellow chin marsh turtles because uh, uh, no disrespect to whoever Blanding was. It's just not a good name. Everybody else gets a good name. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, so you, I'm hoping it catches on. I, I guess you don't want to call them bland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're because they're not, and especially when they get their heads up in that beautiful yellow throat is exposed. But yeah. but anyway, so that that's not uncommon, right, to, for some species to brave, dry uh, conditions and, mm -hmm. and hope for the best and move to another place, uh, another wetland or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, that as a result of that, the long necks are the ones that people are most familiar with. Um, they see them on the roads. They see them in farm ponds or farm dams, as they're called here. Um, and they get smashed on the roads, unfortunately, quite a lot. Um, they also uh, people will uh, try to help them. And they um, most turtles, if you've never noticed, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them have two glands on either side of their bridge that they'll secrete stuff from. Um, and uh, long necks, they're kind of like stink pots a little bit. Sternophorus, they their musk is pretty stinky and it smells actually kind of similar to uh, to stink pots in my in my experience. Um and uh, so because of that, they get kind of a reputation and people think, oh, that turtle stink. And the broad shells and the, the short necks have those glands as well, but they they are not nearly as um, pungent. <laughs> oh, really? OK, so you can scale them <laughs> in terms of stinkiness. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And, and in fact, I should mention, sorry, um, I, I work with a, um, in Deniloquin with a group of um, traditional owners, Aboriginal people there, and their name for the long neck is Tumimum. And one of the... Um, uh, translations for that is stinky turtle. So <laughs> it's pretty apt. I like it. I like it. Uh, so how did you get involved with it? You did, you did come to Australia to do turtle research. Obviously you came for some other reason, you know, you, like you mentioned, your, your teaching strength are in other areas, but how did you get involved with the turtle? Was that something you looked at and went, Hey, I want to do that too. Or can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I um, I dabbled in turtle research during my PhD at Arkansas. Uh, most of my focus was on evolution of viviparity and placentation in snakes and lizards. Um, but I had one chapter on um, uh, residual yolk energetics, so how hatchling and baby turtles use residual yolks in smooth softshell turtles. And I did that work with Mike Plummer, um, who's a professor at Harding University in Arkansas. And um, 
it it kind of translated into my career being a series of steps where I've been at a place either working on turtles or I've been working on viviparity until I got this continuing uh, position that I'm in now. Um, so I had a postdoc at Virginia Tech working on the Kingston, Tennessee coal ash spill, and we were looking at how um, turtles were absorbing um, heavy metals from the coal ash uh, through their food and what kinds of effects it was having. Uh, and then when I first came to Australia, it was on an NSF uh, postdoc grant actually to work on these little skinks uh, called Pseudomoya antricastoi, um, which are um, southern grass skinks that are, they give birth to live young, but they're one of the few reptiles that has a, a fully functioning placenta. So they get about half their nutrients, the embryos from yolk and about half from a placental connection with their mom. Um, so that's what I came over for. Uh, and then I've just decided to kind of stick around as long as I could. And my next job after that was at uh, Western Sydney Uni um, working on the Murray River system, working on turtles with a guy named Ricky Spencer there. Okay. Well, at some point I'm going to, I'm going to jump back and I want to talk to you a little bit about the uh, placental lizards and mm -hmm. other, other, uh, that, that subject a little bit, but, uh, but let's for for now let's go ahead and plunge into the into the turtle business. So, sure. So when you when you got there, you were it was uh, turtle ecology. Is that uh, safe to say the, the thrust of what you were doing with them? Yeah. So Ricky had a grant uh, to study conservation of of uh, of turtles in the Murray system because the problem with them is that there was a few there was a paper in 2011 um, in one general area in central Victoria, New South Wales area that had documented up to 90% declines, 91% in long necks and 67% in short neck turtles. Um, and this was associated with uh, basically a total loss since the seventies of juveniles. Uh, and this pattern has been repeated and, re and observed many places. So that was in one part of the Murray River and further down in South Australia. Um, another guy I've worked with, Mike Thompson had shown basically since the late seventies, early eighties, that there's been really, really intense fox predation on turtle nests. And so putting two and two together, it looks like basically foxes eat the eggs as soon as they're laid. And if you have high enough uh, predation rates, you basically don't have any hatchlings in coming into the river. And so one of the things that I did in that project was I did, uh, it ended up being a lot of fun. I basically just did a series of rapid surveys rapid assessments on the entire southern Murray catchment. So I did the Murray River and some of its tributaries in Victoria and New South Wales, and basically spent a couple of summers trapping turtles everywhere I could. And um, there's a lot of cool aspects to that. One was, I mean, obviously the, the turtle work itself, but also going around and knocking on doors with, you know, random landholders and farmers and saying, uh -huh. hey, we're doing this project. You mind if we throw some traps in, you know, in your wetland up behind your house? And the amazing thing was I only had two people, I think it was, say no. Almost everybody was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. You know, can, yeah, please come out and do it. And, you know, if you catch anything, can we can we bring the kids down and have a look and come out, come in, have a cup and let's talk about your project. They were they were really into it. Um, and so that was kind of the cool, like cultural association with it. Um, but then what we found basically was that pattern of low uh, recruitment and low abundance of juveniles basically applies to almost the entire system. And there's some places like where I live now where there's still relatively high numbers, like you'll see them basking in the spring. Um, but when you go and look in those populations, it's almost all old adults. And so there's this really cool term, well, not a good term, but really appropriate term um, that uh, a couple of other turtle folks in the U.S. came up with. I forget their names right now, but um, it's called the perception of persistence. 
And basically what it means is that ah. you see large numbers of them um, because there's all these adults basically until the adults die of old age. And then once that happens, bam, they're just gone. And unfortunately, it looks like that has already happened in some places in South Australia where we trapped for five days and didn't catch anything um, in some locations. And we trapped, you know, if I put a trap where I work now, where I live now, uh, a decent site, you might get 30 overnight. So it's quite a big difference uh, in what you catch. I see. So now what to do about this? Yep. So there's a lot of uh, lethal efforts, lethal control efforts for foxes. Um, and unfortunately, the downside is it doesn't seem like they work very well. Uh, you have to get every single fox in order for that to work. Uh, we would we do this other experiment where we put out um, chick or fake turtle nests using chicken eggs. So you dig a bunch of holes in the ground and put um, chicken eggs in. Uh, and then you put a remote camera on them to see what, what comes. And most places you'll have a fox just digging them all up within a week or two. Um, and sometimes it's just one fox, you know, that can do all of that damage and wow. you, you can just lose an entire beach. So, you know, it sounds like you have a pretty good idea. I mean, obviously there's always human issues when it comes to turtle populations and, and watersheds, but, uh, this this is the devastating blow. So, uh, how do you address this? I mean, you obviously already have people in the community on your side mm -hmm. in terms of studying. And I, you know, you're we talking about this day actually today. You know, you know, I don't trust people who don't like turtles. <laughs> uh, yeah, who, who doesn't like a turtle? Yeah. So, so obviously you you kind of have something going with them. So, where do you go from there? So we've been really lucky and fortunate um the my collaborator and former and, and mentor um uh, ricky he set up a few years ago uh, an app a mobile phone app, app called turtle sat and it's it's kind of similar to the the hurt mapper which i've been kind of tangentially involved with over there from a distance um in the mm. u.s and but hurt mapper basically allows anybody if they see a turtle or a turtle nest to record it and we provide some instruction on how to how to see what a turtle nest is because usually you just find a hole in the ground with you know, eggshell scattered around and we've gotten a lot of information uh, from that so we've identified a couple of nesting hotspots for future management with that tool um, but we were fortunate this year to get two big research grants and one is uh, a citizen science grant to basically expand the turtle sat network and get more and more try to get more people engaged with it across the southeastern australia and one of the things that we want to do with that in addition to just people entering data is train people in how to use this um this artificial nest approach so because anybody can dig a hole anybody can buy some chicken eggs and if we can get people involved and and just say hey you've got a wetland in your backyard or in your you know you know one of your paddocks or fields in the back you know do you mind putting out 10 nests and just seeing what happens see how fast you know the foxes get them and so by doing that, we what we hope is that we'll get a network of of data from even more of an area of just how bad the fox problem is. Uh, and it could be pigs in some areas too. Um, but then we also the other grant we have is to again work with uh, several partners and community groups to try several methods of direct nest protection. So rather than controlling foxes, we want to protect nests. And there's a few things that we're looking at doing that. Um, probably the easiest, simplest thing is just putting a, a half meter square of mesh 
over nests as soon as they're laid. Uh -huh. um, so the trick with that is you have to see the turtles nesting. Uh, and then as soon as they leave, put it over. Because if you wait too long, you won't be able to find the nest. They're really hard to find. Uh, and the foxes will probably beat you to it. Um, so you, you kind of have to be right there as it happens. Um, another one is fencing off nesting beach areas. So trying to make the nest, make, make the beach as um, attractive as possible to turtles and then put a fence around it. And then the third idea that we're going to try is floating islands. Um, so foxes can swim, but we're hoping that they won't recognize that an island might be a place that turtles can nest on. And we've tested this uh, again. My, uh, my friend Ricky has tested this once uh, with a an island in the Blue Mountains near Sydney, and they were just putting it out to see, you know, basically, uh, you know, how much flotation does it need? How how much sand, you know, can can it carry all that kind of stuff? But they actually had a couple of long neck turtles just happen to nest on it. So we know that it should at least be attractive to uh, to nesting. So we want to try those, wow. those three approaches. That's cool. So so basically you're taking a sandbox and putting it out in the water. Basically, yeah. And the trick is to make wow. sure that you've got enough, you know, buoyancy to hold it up <laughs> um, so yeah. that it doesn't sink down. Um, so and yeah, we've got a more you've got to moor it somewhere or or so it doesn't float away. Yeah. Yeah. But the upside to it is you might be able to move it as well. So, you know, if, if a fox does find it, then you can take it out and put it somewhere else. Wow. Very cool. Well, that's encouraging, uh, especially to hear that they've already looked at it as a, a good place to lay eggs. Mm -hmm. yeah. It has all the has all the things they need, right? It It's the beach, but it's just the beach. You know, the beach is out in the water a little bit. So they, they don't really know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the difference, I guess. Yeah. And Very it's cool. And it's good that they're they'd be willing to do that, that, you know, that going towards land, you know, that you th you'd think that behavior could be maybe, you know, kind of imprinted on them that that just swimming up to a platform that it, you know, maybe, you know, what what kind of cue does that give them? But on the other yeah. hand, um, there's uh, breeding projects in zoos and, and aquaria for turtles. And a lot of times they have a ramp that goes up to a platform and it works really well for them. So they don't need to have, you know, a beach necessarily uh, to nest on as long as they explore and they can figure out, oh, this is above the waterline and it has some kind of soil. You know, if I'm you know full and busting with eggs, you know, maybe that's a good place to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, I th I'm wondering if the, uh, the main requirement is protecting nests is knowing where the, where the nests are going to be and mm -hmm. when they're going to be laid. And, that sounds like somebody doing a lot of beach monitoring. Yep. And, and one, I guess one of the nice things about the fox problem is that the foxes tell you where the, where the big concentrations of nesting are because you just find just holes and holes and holes everywhere with eggshell. Uh, and they, they'll last for you know six months to a year. So they're pretty easy to find. So once you know that you see those areas uh, and if you've been doing any trapping or if somebody has been, monitoring the the basking of turtles you, you'll know that there's turtles around and then that spot is a place that you can you can go and try to manage somehow okay and and where where do these grants come from again so the the citizen science one is an australian citizen uh, uh, federal citizen <laughs> sorry it's an australian uh, federal citizen science grant and then the other okay. one about protecting the nest is a, a linkage grant so it's from the australian research council yeah and it's just okay. been yeah, super lucky and fortunate for us that we got both of those this this year. Yeah, and I'm wondering. Um, typically, it's the government, you know, with the big capital G, are the ones that 
are behind efforts to conserve, you know, organisms in some fashion or like in the United States, you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, the U S government has, uh, uh, you know, the endangered species act. And then they have all these, the states are required to submit wildlife action plans and things like that. So that, the, there's this chain of command and how animals are protected. And does that sort of, uh, framework exist in Australia or how, you know, you're working for a university, but there's gotta be, there's other players involved in this effort, this conservation effort? Yeah, so there's a a federal program for endangered species. And just like the U.S., you you have kind of a federalized system. So there's the the federal level that covers the nation and then there's state level. And so like the turtles that I work on, for example, none of these three currently are listed at the federal level in any way, but they're listed in in at least one state. Uh, For example, the broadshell turtle is endangered in Victoria, but it's not listed at all in New South Wales. Um, so there's, there's varying levels of protection. Um, unfortunately there aren't a whole lot of funds that go for a lot of conservation work. Um, there's some, but it, it tends to focus more on charismatic stuff. So there's a lot of work on on mammals, for example, there's a fair amount of work on some ecosystems. Uh, coral reef obviously is a big one for the great barrier reef. Um, things like koalas always get a lot of attention, which is good. They definitely need it. But it is a struggle and and working with land managers on on like turtle conservation for example a lot of people just want to do the the lethal fox control uh, which is fine like if if you can justify it and if it works for other things then you might get other benefits you know killing a fox might protect maybe even if it doesn't protect the turtle nest it might protect a um uh, a lizard or a um, an endangered mammal, uh, a rodent or or some ground nesting bird or something like that. So there might be other benefits. Um, sure. And, and I just want to mention too. I mean, I think everybody or nearly everybody knows this, but maybe not. But the the fox is an uh, an invasive species. Yeah, it's yeah. not from Australia. Yep. It was inter- introduced there. Yeah, um, a long time ago. And that's a good point I should raise too. Is that when we do this stuff, the foxes are so good at nest predation that they get like they're the main culprit. Um, other animals, native animals, will dig up a nest occasionally. Um, we see uh, ravens and magpies do it. Echidnas will do it sometimes. Um, wow. A lot of people think about goannas, but I've yet to see one actually dig up one of our fake nests, even on our cameras. We've seen them kind of walk through the nest plot sometimes. Um, I'm sure dingoes would do it, but we don't have very many dingoes where I'm working, unfortunately. So, yeah, it, you know, people ask, you know, what about native species? And and it's just, you know, foxes are just just really fast. Their sense of smell is so good that they get most of them. Is the is the fox problem akin to to the coyote problem in the sense that, you know, people try to, you know, and fail at er- eradicating coyotes? Uh, because of a number of different factors I don't want to get into, but it's the same sort of thing. Foxes just have this ability to uh, hang on. And, and even though you, you get most of the foxes, that's just, they bounce back quickly. They, you know, is there some dynamics to that that are hard to control? Yeah, they, um, I mean, even a, a really intense uh, lethal control, like ten, so they use 1080 baiting, which is a chemical called fluoroacetate. Uh, which is derived from a plant, a, a native Australian plant. And so they use that because it it doesn't affect or shouldn't affect the native species at all. Um, ah. And uh, But even where they do like really intensive work with foxes, they might not get every single one. And if they do, even within a small area, well, I mean, you're surrounded by additional populations. And so you get immediate immigration from those other 
populations. Um, foxes and cats uh, also are pretty much densely populated throughout almost all the continent. Foxes kind of peter out once you get too far north, they get it gets too hot for them. But in the southern, let's say, two-thirds to three-quarters of the continent, I mean, yeah, they're just everywhere. Wow. You see them even in the cities, like they've just, <laughs> yeah, they've really taken over. Much like coyotes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, except, yeah. like you said, being totally invasive, you know, uh, being brought in yeah. from, from the UK back in the day. Yeah. I'm not sure I can say that coyotes belong in downtown Chicago, uh, <laughs> which which they apparently live and thrive in. Uh, but that they do belong in a lot of places and they're, they're, they're also here to stay, mm -hmm. you know, whether people like it or not. Uh, so the, I guess the, probably, you know, whoever's talking to you about this, the obvious question that, that I have to ask, or I want to ask is that what about head starting efforts? Is mm -hmm. that something that's on the table with yep. these turtles? We've actually, we've played with that idea in a couple of grant proposals, um, with our turtles so far, they probably aren't at the point that that needs to be done. And we're looking at different models of head starting. So when, when most people say head starting, they think um, like kind of uh, fairly expensive long-term, like you breed some turtles, breed some animals, and then like raise them to a certain age in captivity before you release them. And what we've been kind of playing with it in terms of an idea is more akin to stocking, like with fish, where you hatch as many as you can and you get them out as quickly as you can to as many places as you can. Um, because the, the thing about turtle ecology and population biology is that most of the hatchlings, even in a, a pristine system without foxes, most of the hatchlings probably aren't going to survive. That's kind of the, the right. history of turtles is most of them are, are going to die of some cause anyway. It's just that we've had such intense low mortality in eggs and potentially juveniles that, you know, we've kind of overblown that. So what we're looking at is kind of some alternative ways of, of approaching that head starting problem. Now, um, there is there are some head starting efforts going on for other species. So I was I've been a little bit involved with the Bellinger River turtle, Bellinger River snapping turtle. I should be more specific because there's some controversies about the names. But so the Bellinger River is this little tiny river uh, up in the kind of north coast of New South Wales. And the turtle was endemic to that river. And at its height, the estimate was about four to 5,000 individuals. And in 2015, there was a, a virus that nobody had ever seen before that came through and it killed almost the entire adult population. So if you go there now, there's a few juveniles, but there's, there's virtually no adults left in the river. And it did it within a matter of weeks. It was incredible. Um, people just started finding dead and dying turtles with these um, these puffy uh, inflamed eyes uh, eyelids around, and they were just sick and and dying. Vets tried to help them. There's nothing that worked, and it just it just went through them. And the the virus has been identified now, but we still don't know where it came from. Uh, but there is there are some captive breeding efforts involved that um, Taronga Zoo and Symbio sorry Taronga Zoo and Symbio Wildlife Park are trying to breed them in captivity. And my involvement with that, I have to say, I'm pretty, it's one of those things that, you know, and your CV doesn't count for much as an academic usually, but I was with the team that was trying to capture, capture the first batch of adults for the breeding program. And so basically we're wow. snorkeling up and down the river, trying to catch adults outside of the disease area um, to take down. And um, yeah, that, it's one of the things I look back on my career, you know, as, as being really proud of, because it was, it, you know, that's something that 
I think could really make a, a big difference. Um, but that sounds like a race against the clock, too. Yeah, it was because the virus spreads. And the virus was weird. It was spreading upstream um, against the you know the flow of water, and people were just finding like new places where turtles were dead within you know days, basically. Uh, and so oh we gosh. went to the top and worked our way downstream until basically we went above their range and then just went down until we could find a population. And once we did, we I forget the number we pulled out, but about 16, 17 males and females um, out of the upper reaches. Wow. And so that becomes, I guess, sort of an assurance colony, too. Yep. Yeah. And the interesting thing there, um, kind of the extra little wrench in the works, um, I was working with a PhD student named Kristen Petrov to kind of study the the post-disease survival and ecology of this, of the Bellinger turtle. And there's a, a short neck turtle that's in the same system. And the reason I kind of talked about the name is it was originally named the Bellinger River turtle. But it turns out that the genetics from it indicates that it is most likely a population of released uh, Murray River short neck turtles. Um, so the genes. What? Don't, yeah. So they first appeared in the 80s and it looks like they're they're released um, by humans. <laughs> and wow. And the crazy thing is they interact with the Bellinger River turtle. They're genetically, the estimates are about 20 million years diverged. If you look at, if you didn't know what you're looking at and you held them up next to each other, you, you'd think they were the same. I think they're very, very similar, um, but they're similar enough to actually hybridize. <laughs> and so, uh -oh. so you have the disease events and then you have the potential for competition for food between them and also the, the potential threat of hybridization. And the, the uh, short neck turtles do not seem to be uh, affected by the virus. So they survived. And so you've got this now additional problem of this invasive but native to Australia turtle in the same river as this turtle that has gone through your big disease event. That's there's so much to unpack there. You know, it's it, it's like this roll of the dice with the virus, which is probably some water organism, a fish or something, if it's coming upstream. But the fact that it it affects one species, but not the other. And yet those two are close enough to hybridize. Yeah. And it just, there's a lot going on here. That's, that's kind of hard to yep. figure out. Yeah. And um, I, I don't quote me on this, but just kind of, you know, in thinking of, of current events, I'm pretty sure if I remember the paper correctly, that it is a coronavirus. <laughs> oh my gosh. Of course it is. <laughs> what else could it be? Oh, so the the uh, the assurance colony that you gathered, did you have to do a genetic test to make sure they weren't hybrids or? Yeah, so they did some of that. Uh, we did catch one hybrid uh, in that process. Um, and it was, it. I don't know what its ultimate fate was, but they kept on, they held on to it as well because there's some evidence, again, having the hybrid genes might actually be beneficial because it might protect from the virus. Um, that so was my next, that was my next statement. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That That's all very interesting. And so and I guess too, you look at that and you, you think we got this problem over here with these Bellinger turtles and the Bellinger's river, but uh, what happens if that gets in other river systems? That's uh sounds catastrophic. Yeah, we've been lucky so far. It hasn't. Um, it has been detected in a couple of private collections. We don't know the source. We don't know, you know, anything like that. I, I'm very kind of peripheral to that. I just hear what people tell me occasionally. Um, okay. 
So, but yeah, it would definitely be bad if it got into some of the other, like we said, endemic uh, river populations in particular. So there's a lot of concern. Uh, a few, I forget how far it is, but you know, a couple hundred kilometers south, there's another river with an endemic turtle called the Manning River, and it has the Manning River turtle. And so it's already in decline for other reasons, foxes, water quality issues. Um, and so, yeah, people are very concerned about what would happen if that virus got into that population or going further north to, like you mentioned, the Mary River turtle uh, a while ago. Um, you know, we, we have no idea what kind of effects that virus would have on on those species. Yeah. Oh, there's always something to worry about. Uh, getting back to the, the pro project and the grants that you received. It sounds like you'll be or you or other people will be back to knocking on doors and getting community support. And do do you uh, use other methods? I, I noticed, like I read, I read an article recently uh, in one of the one of your uh, local news media outlets about you and the the grants and saving the turtles and all that. So, how important is that? Do you you feel like uh, there's got to be a multi disciplinary effort to to get this project off the ground how do you approach that yeah that's something with the citizen science grant we were able to um, hire two part-time uh, community engagement uh, officers and so wow. they're going to help us a lot with that um, but you're absolutely right so we've been only just basically trying to get this program started now and we want to use you know a combination of things I mean social media is a big one um, all of the local traditional medias, so radio, print, things like that. We're trying to expand into areas where TurtleSat, that the app hasn't been taken up too much, uh, and also areas that we think might be at risk. So uh, the Darling River, for example, which is one of the bigger tributaries to the, the Murray, um, it, before this year, was in a massive drought, and it was in really bad shape. There was news reports of fish kills in it because the, it was drying up. And so turtle-wise, you know, we have no idea. Nobody's at least recently has done any work on most of the darling and so we'd like to get as much uptake as we can um, in that region in particular and in parts of south australia um, but yeah we, we we're trying for a concerted effort uh, of community engagement as, in as many different ways as we can one of the things that we do is we each year we have we call november uh turtle month because in our area at least it's the main nesting season um for the short necks and the, and the long necks in particular and um so we try to do a bit of a media blitz around that and that's kind of what we're building to with this project so we're doing as much engagement as we can now to then kind of have the project get off the ground for that turtle month the downside right now is that most of those two states, all of New South Wales and Victoria, are currently in lockdown um, because of yeah, uh, COVID. Yeah. So that's put a bit of a kink in the works because we were we wanted to have a face to face workshop where we could do some training and things like that in November this year, and it's just not going to happen. Uh, we're going to have to do that another year. Right, we've got our own coronavirus to deal with. Yeah, and I like this. I like hearing about the using community engagement experts, mm -hmm. which I think is fantastic because the project doesn't depend on the skill, the social skills of other people that, that do other kinds of work. And, you know, I'm not yeah. pointing my finger at you or anything, but, <laughs> you know, because, because uh, you're, you're an affable guy, but, but if you get the wrong person in there trying to, to run that, that doesn't have that skill set, uh, it, it'll never get off the ground, right? So you you yeah. bring the right people who know how to engage with other people and 
and that's what they're good at. And you put them to work. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, it's and even you know personalities aside, even if we were all the you know the nicest people in the world as academics, we teach. We've got all of this other stuff that we have to do. So you know, it's finding right. the time as well. So yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. it's it's a juggling act, definitely. Sounds like you're you're staying pretty busy with that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And especially right now, it's been it's been good because, uh, you know, just being, like I said, in, in lockdown, you know, it gives you th- you know something to focus on without having to think about the world right. too much. You're teaching remotely. Or are you going back to uh, classrooms at all yet or everything for us right now has been online? Uh, I was able this semester to meet once for an anatomy class. But, yeah, everything's just been online. Last semester was all face to face until the end um, because we had Australia had a really lucky time of it. Um, until this current this current outbreak and yeah it's just smashes yeah yeah and of course uh, uh i wish everyone well and i hope uh hope everybody comes out of this okay hmm. um so when I, when I think about turtles and and i i haven't done really any turtle research or or any i haven't really been involved with with any aquatic turtles other than uh my own going out on my own and and snorkeling and things like hmm. that and it's been fantastic but so it sounds like you've had some cool adventures, at least in the water with these things, doing mm-hmm. some snorkeling and other things. So that, that sounds like, uh, to me, that would be the exciting part. Yeah. Uh, getting in the water with the turtles. Yeah. It's it's pretty awesome. Like, I mean, the snorkeling bit is fun because, you know, you see them up close. You see them doing their own thing. And the the, the places like that, like the Bellinger River, it's crystal clear. It's ah. just gorgeous to snorkel in because there's so much stuff in there. I mean, there's eels. There's... All kinds of fish. Um, uh, the first one of the first places we went had a um, intelligamma, a, a water dragon, uh, just sitting on the bottom about uh, four meters down. Uh, so there's just all kinds of things that you see, and then and then trapping turtles, whether in the U.S. or in Australia, is always fun because it's like Christmas. You pull up a trap, you don't know what you're gonna have. <laughs> um, and I remember one time in in Tennessee, pulled up a trap, and there was this just gigantic flathead catfish that was almost as big as the trap was. Oh my! Um, and uh, and and with you know trapping, you, you're out there, you see stuff. Um, I don't get to do as much you know real herping as I used to when I was in the states. Um, but you know, you see brown snakes, you see red belly black snakes occasionally. You see um, goannas, like you you just see all of that stuff um, that most people wouldn't get a chance to. Yeah, uh, it sounds pretty awesome to me. Do, do, are there crocodilians in the, in that river system? No, uh, and that's, I mean, safety-wise, obviously, is very lucky for us. We don't have to worry about yeah. them. Um, they basically come in, they're mainly coastal um, in northern in the northern third of the continent, basically. Um, okay. And that, yeah, and that's been an interesting thing on its own because I, can't, I visited Australia back in 2001 uh, as an undergrad on a uni trip and at the time it had been years since they'd had like a, in a any kind of crocodile attacks or anything like that um because basically they're just like alligators were they were almost hunted to extinction and then they've only just begun to rebound and there was an interesting story um uh more recently there's been a lot more uh, attacks up north and <laughs> talking to one of the locals when i was up in um the Daintree one time um, a few years ago, they said, well, a lot of people grew up in these places, you know, in the 60s, 70s when there weren't many crocs. And so they would go swimming everywhere. And now they're, you know, older people and they come back to their old favorite swimming hole. They don't realize that it's got crocs in it now. 
um, because they've rebounded. And so there's been more attacks, you know, in the past 10 years than there were, you know, previously in previous decades. Sounds like there needs to be an effort to re-educate everybody on yeah. the presence of crocodiles. Yeah. And I tell you, I mean, I, I lived in Florida for a few years and American alligators or even American croc crocodiles are pretty laid back. But when there's cr uh, saltwater crocs out there, estuarine crocodiles, no, not messing with those. <laughs> you don't go near the water with those. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. If there is there, if there's a convenient bridge where I can look down at some, that would be good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. or maybe from a boat or something. Yeah, I don't want to snorkel anywhere near those. Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's awesome, and, and it sounds like uh, you have a lot of hope for this, these projects in terms of turning this around and getting the turtles back on their feet. But I wonder too, you know, you know in the moments you were talking about the absence of baby turtles from the river and environment, I mean, a lot of baby turtles don't make it mm -hmm. uh, because they're, they become part of the food web. Yep. Uh, and so right now you're, you're, you've got an aquatic system that's missing, uh, maybe not a large component of the food web, but it's missing those baby turtles. So uh, whether or not they make it or not, that's, they're still kind of an important uh, organism. Oh yeah. Yep. And not just the babies, but also uh, we had a student named Claudia Santori who did a really cool project uh, looking at scavenging by turtles. And so she had um, turtles in captivity that she had some dead carp that she used to just see how quickly they would they would eat the carp and what kind of effect eating carp versus not eating carp had on water quality. Uh, and then she had a field experiment where she put out um, carp carcasses in cages so turtles couldn't access them or or without cages, so they could. And she got a really cool project out, that, out of that because in captivity, whether a turtle eats, or I guess it could be anything, but whether a turtle scavenges you know, a dead carp makes a huge difference for the water quality of, of, of that um, enclosure. And then in captivity, she found basically that the the caged carp that the cage was big enough so that invertebrates could get in there so things like yabbies and prawns uh, crayfish stuff like that that are commonly viewed as the major um uh, scavengers basically they just sat there and rotted whereas the ones that turtles could access turtles were eating um right away and and the rate of of basically turtles the the, the rate of carp getting eaten was correlated with the number of turtles locally in the system so even there's other scavengers potentially in the system but turtles seem to be a really important part of that and so when you have the fish kill events um yeah the absence of turtles could be a big problem i see and i i assume too if turtles are they're scavenging they're taking chunks out of the fish too so Mm -hmm. uh, they're, I don't know if they eat the entire fish or not, but perhaps they're helping to open up the fish for other scavengers. Absolutely. So um, the one thing they didn't seem to eat was the bones, um, but they would get definitely get it to the point that if you had crayfish or smaller insects that are also scavenging, they they would be able to clean up the the smaller bits. Definitely. I see. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's funny how the, the ways you have to think about these things, uh, it's not just in terms, I mean, we all love turtles so much. We don't want any baby turtles to get predated. Mm -hmm. uh, we want them all to grow big and strong and healthy, but uh, the entire uh, ecosystem requires them. Yep. It requires their sacrifice, you know, so to speak. And there's a paper by Lovich and Gibbons, 2018, that I, I shouldn't use a citation in a podcast like this, but they make oh, the statement. Do. They make the statement that in some systems in the world, so this is a global review of turtles, 
that in some systems, freshwater turtles had more biomass than herbivores on the Serengeti. And if you think about what that means in terms of numbers of turtles, like that's a lot of turtles in those yeah. systems uh, historically. And in a lot of rivers and other freshwater systems, we, we're nowhere near that any, anymore. No, that's amazing. More, more food for thought. Yeah. Wow. Uh, as far as this project goes, is there anything else that our, our listeners should know? I guess uh, I assume a lot of your listeners may be American uh, or based in North America. So I guess just getting an idea of kind of what these turtles are like. We said the the, the long necks are similar to the um, uh, the yellow mud turtles. Um, I think it was that we said. Um, sure. The short neck turtles to me are ecologically our version, the Australian version of a slider. Like that's basically okay. very similar. The only thing they don't do that I've noticed is they don't uh, produce as many clutches per year. Like some sliders might have, you know, nest three, four, five times a year. And these yeah. guys might you know, usually once, maybe twice sometimes, but, um, but they're very, very similar to those. And then the broad shells, I'm just trying to think of an equivalent, um, kind of like soft shell turtles, uh, just in terms of the role they play and what they do. Um, but they don't bite. <laughs> oh, so they're, they're a little bit different that way. Okay. Uh, no, and of course, these are all pleurodires. Yeah. Side yeah. necks. Yeah. And whereas <laughs> North America, we have these cryptodires. Yeah. Uh, hidden necks or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. That pull their neck straight back into the shell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that it's just so interesting that uh, there's all these little niches that, you know, there's a soft shell uh, niche or near uh, something like a soft shell niche. There's a slider niche and, and, uh, and there's a rambling, roving pond hopping turtle niche if mm -hmm. you will so yeah no matter where you go that's pretty cool so let me let me bring this back to uh if you think we, we've we've done this enough justice um you, you talked a little bit about uh placentas and lizards and the mm -hmm. the uh that uh can we talk a little bit more more about that because that's also uh, i think a very interesting yeah, topic sure. yeah you uh you talk about the the lizard the uh i can't remember the name of it uh, uh what was the name of the lizard that uh oh the southern grass skink yeah yeah that's yeah. it yeah mm -hmm. so i guess the way to get started with that is the and a lot of people may, may not know that uh live birth has evolved over 100 times in snakes and lizards um so more times than in any other vertebrate group anyway um, so we think of a lot of people think of live birth and placentas being a mammalian trait. You know, it's very kind of mammal chauvinist in a way. Uh, but it's those things only evolved once in us uh, before our group that what we often call placental mammals, actually, before we split off evolutionarily from marsupials, because marsupials have a placenta for a very short time, too. So we have one origin in mammals uh, way back in our history. And then in skinks and lizard and other lizards and snakes, it's over 100 origins. So it just pops up over and over and over again. Um, one of the reasons could be that if even if you're an egg laying lizard or snake, they tend to carry the egg for the first third or so of development, um, which is unlike turtles and birds and crocodiles, which basically the egg gets fertilized. They might hold on to it for a short period, but if they do, the egg is actually the embryos in what we call diapause. It's just it's literally paused in development until it gets laid. 
And snakes and lizards, that diapause doesn't really happen. It gets fertilized and then the mother carries that egg for several weeks and it develops to, like I said, about a third of the way developed before she lays the eggs. So they're already kind of pre-adapted. They're to not pre-adapted, but they already kind of have the, the starting point of live birth. And that's, a, that's an advantage in itself to carry developing eggs for longer than other time. You know, that, that's, that's an, an advantage, right, to protect the eggs uh, for some particular, an additional period of time. Yeah, potentially. It does come at a cost, though, because then the mother has to carry this, you know, weight, basically. Um, uh, yeah. And so that might slow her down or you know, make it harder to forage or escape predators, things like that. Um, so then if you look at most of the lizards and snakes that have made that transition to giving to, giving birth to live young, they used to be called ovoviviparous. Um, we don't use that term very much anymore because it kind of suggests that the egg is just sitting inside the mother and the mother's just carrying it and not doing anything else with it. But they, they have, if you look microscopically at the interface between the embryo and the uterus or the oviduct, either term works in this case, um, you'll see specializations uh, for gas exchange. So there's there's capillaries and blood vessels and, and all that kind of, they really match together from the embryonic to the maternal side to facilitate oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange. Okay, um, which is which is important for development. Yeah, yeah they, you need oxygen, you know, developing right. um, even that we do the same thing so in humans the placenta uh, provides the oxygen to the fetus it's the exact same mechanism so they still get most of their nutrition from the yolk and so the mother's basically carrying around these eggs that she is providing gas exchange for maybe some other things um and that could be why you see like like rattlesnakes for example are great uh great example for this when they're pregnant they often just find, you know, a rock pile or a rookery of some kind to just sit and they just stay there an entire season and they'll bask and they'll have, you know, the temperature to kind of keep them warm and, and drive that develop, developmental process. But then they have a, a hide and they'll go in that hide. They don't really eat over that period. So they're, they're kind of in a place where they can stay protected until they give birth. And so that's seems to be the case with a lot of these live bearing snakes and lizards is they'll do something like that where they have slightly reduced activity or or they might stop eating or something like that until they they can give birth um the placental ones are interesting because they no longer have as much weight to carry because the egg starts out smaller and then she provides more nutrients to the egg as it develops just like we do so humans start off with a microscopic egg it gets fertilized and then the placenta provides all of the nutrition um, and it takes a while for it to reach the full, you know, size of the fetus. And so there might be an advantage to that, that now the mother doesn't have to carry around that weight for as long. Um, we don't know why, like that's some, or we don't know if that's true. That's some ideas that we have. Um, but in any case, we do have yeah, a couple of lizards that have a much more functional placenta. So there's, there's five, five to six gen, uh, genera, depending on who you talk to. In Australia, we have two of those, Pseudomoya and Nevia skinkus and or Carina skinkus, depending on the name. And then there's some in South America called Mabuya and some in oh, yeah. Africa called uh, Lubuya. So Mabuya, Lubuya uh, and Chalcides in the Mediterranean. So we have a oh, couple yeah. of instances of examples that, that have more of a placenta. Now, let me ask you, uh, it just struck me, uh, these genera uh, have some placental development is there a variation in species like in chalcides is there's a number of species of those 
do they all have it or is there some variance in in that yeah that's a great question um chalcides um there's one species chalcides chalcides that definitely has it uh chalcides ocellatus does not um they they have a, a much simpler uh, derivation of a placenta same thing that's for not yeah yeah that there's some variation and same for the nibia skinkus one here there's some variation pseudomoya is probably the best studied of the group um it's been studied all the way since the 1920s here uh in australia and they there's three species that have very well-developed placenta um and then there's several species in the genus that nobody's looked at yet um for various reasons, um, we just haven't gotten around sure. to it. Basically, interesting. That's that's nuts. Uh, but I I had an in, a sudden flash of intuition that there might be a story there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is why I asked you. Yeah. Uh, it very and of course there's probably other species of lizards out there we we just don't know. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's so yeah, many. So there yeah, could be quite a, quite a few more. Mm -hmm. uh, and what about is there any evidence for the placental development in snakes? So that's a good one. Um, again, not many have been looked at. Um, the kind of the most common way people look at this question is if they have museum specimens or a, a recently uh, deceased female snake that is just at ovulation, they'll weigh the eggs, uh, the dry the way do basically dry mass measurements of the eggs to see how much material is in them, and then you compare that to the mass of a juvenile, a newborn. And usually what you see is about a 30%, 25 to 30% loss of weight of mass. And what that represents is the, the egg had some amount of material that the mother provided and the embryo is going to have to burn some of the calories in that to, as it develops. And so it's going to be left with less than what was in the egg just by definition. Right. So in any case like that, you can be pretty sure that there's no placenta, no placental nutrient transfer involved. Um, when you look at some of the pseudomoya, um, it's different. They, they actually gain about 20, 30% in mass uh, from the egg to the newborn. So they have to be getting something. And the mabuyas are almost like mammals. Um, so they go from a tiny little, uh, almost microscopic egg up to a juvenile. So it's like a 4,000 fold increase in mass. So they're like, they're pretty much only relying on the placenta. Wow. Um, th this is fascinating to me. Another question from back a little bit in the conversation is you said we don't call these uh live bearers uh ovoviviparous anymore yeah the, what do, what do we call them so we just uh we just go with viviparous in the viviparous in the group okay. that i work with yeah because ovoviviparous like i said kind of suggests that there's no interaction between the mother and the embryo and in all cases every time that people have looked at that in a reptile there's gas exchange going on there. The female uh -huh. is probably maintaining water balance somehow. There might be transfer of some nutrients. So something that people don't maybe think about is in the oviparous animals, um, they get some of their calcium from the eggshell. Uh, the embryo does during development. So if you take the eggshell away and you have the embryo developing inside the mother, it has to basically find that calcium elsewhere. And it looks like some of that comes from the mother um, in in these viviparous in these viviparous cases that are still relying on a yolk without okay. you know, major placenta, so there's a little bit of calcium coming in. Um, so that's that's coming in from the mother's what they call blood blood calcium mm -hmm. uh, in the circulatory system. So yep. somehow it's it's crossing over. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Ooh, man, it's it's much more complicated than we thought, isn't it? It always is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cooler too. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. Uh, 
the deeper you go, the cooler it gets. Yeah. Well, this is this is fascinating to me, and and you're again, you know, talking about the number of times that the live bearing reptiles have evolved over and over again independently. And I suppose you said it was more than 100 times. And I suppose that we know this because each one is a, a little bit of a different structure or a different system or a different, you know, there's there's some differences between them. We can say, hey, oh, this, this live bearing snake, like a garter snake, is completely different from a, a timber rattlesnake, let's say, because of X and it does this, you know, something on a very on a very complicated and fine scale. A lot of it comes from uh, mapping on phylogenies. So um, okay. we basically have to, we have to rely on, on the best phylogenies that are available to make a lot of those kinds of interpretations. Um, but you can look at, well, I guess a good example is to come back to Pseudomoya, its closest relatives are oviparous. And so, you know, on, on the file, on the tree, it's right next to an oviparous group. And then their Niveuskinkus is another viviparous group that is pretty closely related, but they're separated by uh, a few oviparous species on the tree. So, I mean, I, I'm not a, a phylogenetic person, so I have to kind of take on faith that, that those people know what they're doing correctly. Um, but it is, uh, there is a little bit of, of um, debate there. Because one of the things we don't know very well is whether they can reverse. So if you're viviparous, can you go back to being oviparous? Um, we have some physiological reasons why we think that might be difficult uh, or more difficult than going uh, from oviparous to viviparous. But a good example of a potential exception to that is bushmasters. So bushmasters are an egg-laying viper, a uh, pit viper, that are basically surrounded on a phylogenetic tree by viviparous relatives. And so basically the only possibilities, evolutionarily speaking, is that they're either a, rever a reversal or they have maintained that oviparous history throughout their evolutionary time. And so all of these viviparous uh, relatives have basically become viviparous as they've branched off of whatever branch the lachesis, the Bushmasters are still on. So. You know, you, you kind of have to think about it probabilistically. Is it more likely that they've retained oviparity and we've had oh, they've retained oviparity and we've had multiple origins of viviparity, or have we had one origin of viviparity and one reversal to oviparity in that group? Um, you know, That's and, and it's all probabilistic. Yeah, and I get a bit frustrated with those debates because it's like, well, without a time machine, it's really hard to know for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, I wish I could get busy on that time machine stuff. We have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's interesting because, you know, you always, uh, or I hear people say things like, well, the, the Bushmaster is, uh, because it's still oviparous, it, it, it is a more primitive or the more basal animal in the phylogeny mm -hmm. and, and other things. Are, are are newer, more contemporary because they've evolved differently, and I, I none, none of that ever made sense to me. But so it's possible it, it it's just better for it to be an egg layer, mm -hmm. or like you say, maybe it, it did revert, and that would be fascinating to know yeah. for you know to understand that. Uh, yeah, I think one of the challenges with evolution and understanding evolution is that you know, a given phenotype works in a system, or else it would go extinct. Uh, and yes. so, you know, when we when we even use those kinds of terms, like it might be 
a primitive quote, you know, trait, yeah. but it still works. And so, you know, it, there's nothing, I, I wouldn't, I, I think calling them primitive, I agree with you, is probably a little bit frustrating because they're pretty magnificent. Mag, magnificent. I mean, sharks still exist and sharks pre predate trees. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, so, you know, there are you know, some great examples of that out there. Yeah. Well, we have we have other problems with sharks, right? Like the shark infested waters thing. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, all that nonsense. And I'm, I'm happy that you bring up Bushmasters because it's they come up often in these in this mm-hmm. in the show. And uh, yeah, it's good to add another episode where we talk about Bushmasters because <laughs> they are one of my favorite uh, serpents. Uh, yeah. For many reasons. But uh, yeah, well, that's that's very interesting. I'm quite jealous because I've never actually been able to see one in, in the wild um, oh. so someday. Well, yeah. Well, it's a long flight uh, to from where you're at over to where, where we see Bushmasters. But if you want to come over sometime, we'll see what we can do for you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so that's that's very interesting. And so are you are you actually doing some work in that regard uh, with with the uh, the placental lizards? What do you what do you how what's your involvement in that? So I did a couple of papers on it, uh, mainly on that pseudomoia group, and I've co-supervised students uh, working actually on everything from lizards to sharks and now also seahorses, uh, because seahorses obviously have a, have a very different pattern where the males are the ones who give birth. Because what happens is when they mate, the females deposit the eggs into the pouch of the male, and then the male uh, provides the sperm in the pouch, and they develop, and then he yeah. gives birth to them. Um, so. It's a totally different system, but they have to um, uh, find ways to deal with the exact same challenges that a, a lizard would or, or a human would. So, yeah, I'm kind of tangentially involved in that work at the moment, uh, but I'm always kind of trying to find ways to get a, a pseudomoya project off the ground. When, so they're, the, they're these little skinks. They're like a little bit bigger than a skincella, not quite as big as a five-line skink, but I love them just because they have so much personality. Um, the way you catch these, the best way, is you find uh, what's called a, a lamandra tussock. So it's this this kind of bushy, tussocky grass. And uh-huh. one tussock, maybe, you know, a meter across, let's say, not often that big. But you'll have just this meadow of, of tussock in a, a semi-open canopy forest. And each one of those tussocks will be home to, I don't know, five to 20 of these skinks. And wow. the best way to catch them is to have a, a fishing pole with a little bit of thread on the end and you tie a mealworm on it and you just dip it into the lamandra <laughs> and they'll run out and they'll grab it. And they, then you just pull them up and then you use a butterfly net to kind of swoop in underneath so that when they drop, they drop in the butterfly net. Um, I love it. But they so you do this fishing for them. It's just fantastic. But my favorite story was I was I was catching, you know, I was doing that, catching them. And usually we're only after the females, so the males we let go. And um, there's one that I saw kind of poked out from underneath a bush. And there's a spider web connecting that bush to another bush. And a fly got stuck in the spider web. And that little lizard is sitting in there in ground, cocks its head, looks up at that thing, and then runs into the bush. And say 30 seconds later, I see one of these pseudomoya skinks, and I assume it's the same one crawl out on one of the fronds of the lamander. So it's a pretty tall, spiky grass, and it crawls out on this frond, on this blade of the grass, and the blade bends down and bends down as it's getting heavier with the lizard, and it's getting further and further, getting as close to the spider web as it can. And then all of a sudden, you can see it does the calculations in its mind, and it just jumps into the, you know, the vast blue yonder, 
and he grabs the fly off the spider web, hits the ground, and runs into the bush. And it's like, you know, that little <laughs> lizard, it looked up and it said, I can get that. And it figured out, you know, exactly wow. how to get that fly. Yeah, they're just awesome. <laughs> oh, what a, what a story. Oh, if only you could capture a moment like that. It's just yeah. one of those once-in-a-lifetime things that, that happens. Yeah. Uh, I, I would love to come to Australia sometime. I mean, just for the lizards alone, there are so many... Yeah, so many lizards there. It's it's almost incredible. Yeah, and, we'd, uh, we'd be happy to have you visit sometime. Um, and like you said, the lizards, I mean, everything from the little skinks up to big varanids. Um, they're pretty cool. Yeah. So do you have much uh, contact with other herps there? Or is it you kind of, you got your specialities, obviously, but, uh, and there's bycatch, I assume. It sounds like you, you see things along the rivers and so on and so forth. But uh, yeah, what's been your experience? Yeah, I try to go out herping when I can. I find it really challenging compared to the U.S., um, especially, I mean, my first, what got me into herps was snakes. And snakes are really thin on the ground in most places. And where you do find them, of course, a lot of them are highly highly venomous elapids. So, you know, the old days of picking up a black rat snake or something like that are are pretty far gone for me. Um, But, you know, I see red belly black snakes probably the most common species that I, that I come across. Um, and Eastern Browns would be, um, second to that. Uh, the red bellies are, are really funny. Um, they, I mean, all the snakes, just like in the U S they all get reputations for, you know, for their danger and things like that. But they do this thing where when you walk up to them, they'll flatten their neck out almost, you know, you know, somewhat kind of Cobra like, and they arch it. They look a lot like a, um, like a big indigo. Um, they're very oh. similar behavior to okay. indigo snakes. And when you get up close to them, they'll, they might lunge at you, but then in mid lunge, they just reverse direction and take off the opposite way. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty funny. And, and nine wow. times out of 10, they'll, you know, they, they've left you long before you see them. Um, it's just the, the few that you're able to get up close to that will do that um, yeah. as their defensive behavior. So more interactions with lizards. How about amphibians? Yep. Um, I've been out for looking for frogs a few times. Um, not very successfully, except when I've been out with people who know where to look. Um, there's definitely some in some of the wetter areas, some really fantastic diversities of frogs around here. There's there's some and I just haven't had the time to get out and look for them too much. And unfortunately, we don't have salamanders. Um, there's not even no. a fossil record of salamanders in Australia. So it's all frogs, um, although there's some invasive um, forget what species it is, but around uh, Melbourne, there's a, a, a couple of places where people have found released pets, basically. Um, of oh. Something. oh, like a Sicilian or something or? No, I think I want to say axolotl, but I don't think that's what it is. It was, it oh. might be a European species. I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay. But, um, yeah. They pop up. Oh occasionally. boy. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, there's corn snakes in some of the cities there too, isn't there? I forget the city. I won't say it. I won't guess, but there's one of the cities has a fairly established population of corn snakes. Yeah, nobody's really studying that kind of thing. What happens is the snake catchers, so there's a, a pretty, I guess, large group of people in some of the cities who will get called out to homes and remove snakes. Um, and yeah, apparently corn snakes are one of the ones that they catch with, with some frequency. Um, and of course, Australia doesn't allow non-native pets, uh, non-native pet reptiles anyway. Of course, you can have cats and dogs. And so nobody should have those. Um, and I remember <laughs> I went on a, a, a date one time and the girl was telling me that her uncle had a snake that had just given babies or given birth and she was holding one. I said, 
If it was an Australian snake that gave birth, that would be a venomous species, probably. There's a few live, there might be a live bearing uh, uh, colubrid here or there. But I was like, can you send me a picture of what it was? And it was a boa constrictor. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, you know, they do trickle in occasionally. Um, yeah. Which is unfortunate. Yeah. Well, you know, the desire is strong. Yeah. Uh, folks want the, they want the experience. And uh, I can see, I can see where that, in Australia, it's like, well, I can't touch anything. So I need a snake that I can hold mm-hmm. and put around my neck. Cause that's people love to do that stuff. And I, I can see the consequences that it's probably not too hard to put a tiny corn snake on a plane and, and get yeah. it over. So those things happen. Yeah. And, and there is a pretty good, uh, it's a very regulated pet trade in things like pythons and blue tongues. Um, okay. Some of the, some of the lizards, uh, some goannas as well, but um but definitely pythons are pretty popular, uh, whether it's carpets or, or children's pythons, things like that. Okay. And so folks can keep those. They need a permit for that or? Yeah, normally you need a license. There's some state different. Again, each state does things slightly differently. Um, so I don't know all the rules, but you can keep um, yeah, pet snakes, uh, pet turtles um, and lizards. Yeah. Okay. And I, I want to I'm back. I'm constantly backing up because I, have an idea and then I put it away for later in the show. But the feral cat issue, is that, is that a big problem in yeah. uh, your area? Yeah, pretty much continent wide. Uh, I guess invasive species get the bulk of the news as being an environmental problem. I mean, right. a whole bunch of problems, <laughs> but yeah, cats, um, foxes, carp, even deer, like where I live now, feral deer have become a big problem. Um, so <sighs> There's, yeah, all, all of that kind of thing. Uh, cats get a lot of press because they're such good predators, just like the foxes are. And definitely they are impacting things like lizards. Um, I don't know. It's interesting when you look at like how they've been studied. My understanding isn't great on it, but it looks like most of it comes from like stomach contents and some limited experiments where they've done exclosures and in, in fenced off an area and prevented cats and foxes from being in. So I don't know how much impact directly they have and how well the native animals are able to survive them, um, the native reptiles anyway. But there's a lot of focus certainly on on how they impact mammals and birds, especially. Okay. Uh, you know, over here, there's so much pushback from cat owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could have an army of community engagement people. Mm-hmm applying their specialized skills and they would run up against the brick wall of cat lovers who either deny <laughs> that cats outside cats are a problem or don't care. Yeah. Uh, so do you see that over there too? Or? Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that exists here too. And, and people, you know, people come at it from different perspectives and not all of them are, are poorly meaning. Um, you know, there's a definitely that kind of well-meaning cat owner who, you know, oh, you know, it wants to go outside. You know, it feel it looks so sad being inside all the time. You know, it's that it's mainly that we don't have much of the trap trap neuter release mentality here because you know they're totally invasive, non-native. So we don't have that, but there is still much more of that kind of, yeah, well, it's my pet cat and it gets to go outside whenever it wants, that kind of thing. It needs to hunt. Yeah. It needs mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Well, do you ever come back to the States or you've been over there for a while without a visit back home? I mean, obviously you can't come home right now, but. Uh, yeah, uh, I was until a few years ago, I was on a pretty good kick of coming back every year, every other year. Um, yeah. But it's been 
uh, almost four years now, I think, since the last time I was wow. home. Uh, I was I was meant to go home last last July last year, um, but of course, the world uh, changed, and that was yeah. not possible. So, well, well um, you, you got your degree from uh, University of Arkansas, but is that where your people are from, or are you from somewhere else? Uh, my family's in Virginia. Um, Virginia, so up, okay. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the Shenandoah Valley area. Um, so, oh. you know, again, herping wise. Um, you know, black rat snakes and and painted turtles and snapping turtles all the time. And my one of the big like influences on my, you know, kind of, I guess, growing up was uh, hiking in a, a river valley with my dad. We, were, we would go fly fishing for trout and hiking on this mountain stream. And I remember just about to take a, a step and hear hear this. And I just looked down and right where my foot's about to go is a timber rattlesnake. And oh, that. Wow. You know, that was just such a cool thing as a kid. Um, and I've been back to that same spot, not the exact same spot, but that same river a few times. And there's this one location where um, every May, June that I've been there, it's a washed out, cut in the creek, basically. There's a, a bunch of gravel and some big fallen logs that have fallen down. And there's not not always, but oftentimes you can find a, a rattlesnake um, under one of those logs in shed. So you can just see that its eyes are, you know, blue and things like that when they're, oh, wow. when they're sitting there. So it, it seems like a cool spot that they, that they really like. A safe, uh, humid spot to, uh, prepare for shedding their skin. That's, that's cool. Yeah. I was just talking today about, we, we saw a couple timber rattlesnakes yesterday, mm -hmm. uh, gravid females and, uh, yeah. uh, out. And of course, you know, we took some pictures, but you know, we don't touch them or move them or anything. We just enjoy them. And, uh, Despite all the other rattlesnake species I have seen, I still they're still the coolest rattlesnake for me, and that may be because I see more of them than any other rattlesnake. But there's just something about a, a big timber rattlesnake that uh, yeah that gets my blood going. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty awesome. Um, so that, that was during my PhD. I spent a lot of time radio tracking them, not for my project, but um, I was uh, uh, basically helping my PhD supervisor Steve Beaupre on his his stuff, and so. Yeah, okay. two or three times a week, every you know, all through the summer, out um, out radio tracking them. That was always fun. Um, you get to know them. You know, they all have yeah. their own their own thing that each one of them does. They're yeah, I miss those days. It was a lot of work, you know, hiking up and down Ozark Mountains in those days in the just hot, humid, tick infested. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Well, I was just like I say, I was out doing this, this, this past, this weekend. And, uh, it was one of my buddies I was with Greg Stevens, a fan of the show. Hi, Greg. Uh, he did the same thing to spend some time doing radio tracking in Indiana and, uh, mm -hmm. says the same thing you're saying, like, get to know the animal and maybe their individual quirks and habits. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, I got to spend a little time helping him with that. And so I was amazed how much I learned about timber rattlesnakes in a short period of time. And I'm sure, I'm sure you learned a lot about them as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. just by following them around and finding them places that you may, you may have assumptions about them, but they're, they, they don't always do what we think they they should do. You know, sometimes yeah. they, they bolt and they travel quite a distance away and yeah, uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting. So my favorite story from those was there's one that we tracked for a couple of years. Um, and both of the two years I can remember in June, she climbed a tree. She climbed the exact same tree, same time of year, both times. And she would sit there on a branch with her head cocked in that ambush position towards the trunk of the tree. And so I guess she was going after uh, a, a paramiscus or maybe a squirrel, you know, small chipmunk or something like that. Uh, she wasn't very big. I don't think she could take a squirrel, but um, yeah, just really cool that 
you know, she wow. got up that exact same tree both years in a row. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. And we we oftentimes you hear people talking about these dumb animals, but they're they they know their business mm-hmm. uh, when it yeah. comes to survival. They really do know their business. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, again, I, I could talk about timber rattlesnakes anytime with anyone. <laughs> so uh, it's it's nice to talk to you about them as well. So. Mm. Well, I, I, w- I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Do you have a, a, any other interests going on there herpetologically? Or? Oh, um, no, I think we're, that's about it. I guess the going back to the venomous snakes thing here in Australia, the, the only one that I'm reasonable, reasonably confident with, you know, in, in terms of if I see it, I, I know what it do is a, is a death adder. Um, oh. And it's because they're so, they're so similar to a viper in body shape. You know, they, I mean, right. they're, they're in Lapid, but the name Adder, you know, comes from, you know, they, the British thought they look like adders, um, potentially. They're these fat little sluggy kind of snakes compared to all the Lapids. And, and yeah, they're, even though they're much more venomous, they, they, I really look at them kind of like copperheads. So they, they just have that same kind of body shape and size and all that. Yeah. So I guess that's just a, another little bit of tidbit, you know, to think about for the North American people. <laughs> <laughs> do they, do they, uh, they're not a, they're not a skedaddler then they, they rely on, they just kind of sit there. They rely on pattern and color. Yeah. Like a head would. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so I've never come across one actually coiled up. I've only seen them on roads, but, um, but they're, they're just not fast. Uh, they're fast yeah. striking, but just not, they just can't move very quickly to, to, you know, get off the road. So, whereas you see, like we said, brown snake or something, it's, you know, they're just there gone. Yeah, that's uh, I'm kind of resigned to it. You know, eventually I will get to Australia. But I'm resigned to uh, the lizards being, uh, you know, something I can get my lens on mm-hmm. <laughs> without as much trouble as uh, as your lapid. So I, I certainly want to see as many as I can. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, well, I hope we can get you down sometime soon. Well, I, I you know, I've, I'm hoping to come within the next year or two if I can virus willing and. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, I'd love to come by and visit sometime if I make it over there to definitely put, uh, put you on the, on the itinerary in your, your area. So that'd be yeah, fun to absolutely. Come down yeah. see what you're up to down there. But, yeah, uh, thank, you know, thanks again for coming on the show. I, you know, it's, uh, giving you some of your, your Monday morning time. It's Sunday evening where I'm at. And, uh, I suppose you have probably have some work things to do coming up here. So, uh, yeah. Thanks for having me, Mike. And, and I guess one quick plug is that if there are Australians listening, please check out TurtleSat and our, um, you know, the citizen science program for the turtles that we've been talking about, because that's kind of one of the things I could do to justify coming on the podcast on a, during my work hours was to say, oh, I'm oh, going to yeah. plug this program. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I do have a few uh, Australian listeners. Yeah. And I've, I've actually had a couple of folks on the show. I've had Jody Rowley. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. for the, the Australian Museum on, and I had Scott Iper on the show as well. Yeah, up in Queensland. So, yeah, uh, it's funny you mentioned Jody because um, I've met her. I don't know her well. I've met her a couple of times, but her Frog Watch program uh, was also funded by the same Citizen Science oh, uh, program that's funding ours. So, yeah, we've good. modeled some of our stuff on on a lot of her success. So they've been yeah, very just, successful. Yeah, uh, in terms of how many people they've they've gotten to participate and what you mm-hmm. know discoveries they've made and so on forth i'm just uh, amazed by that program so yeah, yeah it's really uh, well great do- well done jody well done australian museum so mm-hmm. everybody involved with that project so 
Well, thanks again. And uh, good to talk to you. Good to see you again. And uh, see you, Mike. hopefully I'll get a chance to see you in person sometime. Yeah, anytime you can come down. We'll be glad to have you. Thanks again, Mike. Very good. Hey there, me again. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Van. And uh, please see the show notes for some interesting links to the TurtleSat project and the One Million Turtles Community Conservation Program and a couple other things I've thrown in there. And I also want to point out that Van and a cohort of colleagues have recently put out a huge honking paper titled Australian Lizards Are Outstanding Models for Reproductive Biology Research, uh, which I have only begun to read through this week. Uh, And it's interesting to see that one of the sections in the paper is about viviparity and placentation, which is one of the topics we just discussed. And uh, in the process, of course, of talking with Van, I learned that the term ovoviviparous is out, and we simply use the term viviparous for live bearers and oviparous for egg layers. So uh, I will also put a link to this paper in the show notes as well. And uh, uh, there are many co-authors, as I said, but I, oh, I just want to give a shout out to one in particular, Daniel Hoops, who came down to Peru with us a few years ago. And Daniel is a hacking good birder, and I really appreciated his enthusiasm on our morning bird boat excursions. That's all I have for this epilogue. So I, I hope you enjoyed my talk with Van as much as I did. Well, that's it for episode 48. I want to thank James Van Dyke for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking with you, Van, and hopefully I'll get a chance to visit uh, in the future. And thanks once again to Pearson McGovern and Tom Ellis for supporting the show. And uh, if you're out there listening and would like to kick in a few bucks, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much bingle and so much bingle is all one word. You can also make a one-time contribution via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for details on that. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much And you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group uh, to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests and other cool herpster people. And last but not least, you can reach me directly via email at so much pingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, Please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.